0: This podcast episode is the recording of an in-house seminar presented by Professor Elizabeth Elliott on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and the law. Professor Elliott is a distinguished professor in paediatrics and child health in Sydney University Medical School, consultant paediatrician at the Sydney Children's Hospital Network in Westmead, a National Health and Medical Council of Australia practitioner fellow, and Fellow of the Academy of Health and Medical Sciences. She has been involved in clinical services, research, advocacy and policy development regarding Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, or FASD, in children and alcohol use in pregnancy for over 20 years. Professor Elliott chaired the National Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders Technical Network convened by the Australian Government Department of Health She heads the New South Wales FASD Assessment Clinic and is co director of the FASD Research Australia, a National Health and Medical Council of Australia Centre for Research Excellence. She was deputy chair of the Intergovernmental Committee on Drugs Working Party on FASD, a member of committees to develop the National Health and Medical Council of Australia's Australian Alcohol Guidelines in 2009. World Health Organization's guidelines for identification and management of alcohol misuse during pregnancy in 2014, and an international charter for the prevention of FASD. Professor Elliott jointly led development of the Australian guide to the diagnosis of FASD. She is the clinical lead on the Lilliwan project for, of on FASD prevalence in the Fitzroy Valley and the Big Is One follow-up study. She's on the National Health and Medical Council of Australia's projects on positive parenting and alcohol use in in pregnancy, and two pregnancy cohorts. She leads development on the National FASD Hub website, which is a national FASD register. Professor Elliot will give an update on progress in addressing FASD in Australia and its relevance to the legal profession. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thanks. Um, we've got a quite a long session, so I thought I'd just
1: run through, first of all, what is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? What do we know about it in Australia? And then more specifically, what are the implications for the legal system? What data do we have from FASD in, in relation to the legal system in Australia? And then some case examples, um, which might be of interest to you. So, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is actually an acquired brain injury due to prenatal alcohol exposure and it's characterised by severe neurodevelopmental impairment. And I'll explain that in a minute. You might ask, well why should we worry about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in Australia? Well, we have a drinking culture. We have binge drinking in teams, it's very common. The unplanned pregnancy rate is about 50% still. Um, We know that alcohol is used in a large number of pregnancies and we know that alcohol crosses the placenta and is toxic to the brain. Um, So theoretically any unborn child exposed to alcohol is at risk of harm including fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So how does this work? Well if I drink a drink when I'm pregnant it immediately crosses the placenta and the blood alcohol level in the mother and the baby equilibrates very quickly. Um, the harm depends on the dose of alcohol, the frequency, and the timing in the pregnancy, but also a whole lot of other unmeasurable factors, such as the genetics of the fetus and the genetics of the mother, their capacity to metabolise alcohol. Um, I put this slide up to remind you that in in the times when I was getting pregnant, people said, first trimester is what you have to worry about. And that's because we know that all... The organs form in that first trimester: the heart, the lung, the eyes, the ears. Um, but we also know that the brain continues to develop through the second and third trimesters. So, although you may not get birth defects if you're drinking in the second and third pregnancy, a uh, part of pregnancy, you may well, the, the the infant may well still be subject to to brain damage. Um, I put this slide up just to let you know that because it may be relevant to you is that. Alcohol exposure, even in the absence of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, can cause harm. So, for example, we know from very large data linkage studies in Western Australia that children exposed to prenatal alcohol, usually um, moderate to high amounts, may get birth defects, cerebral palsy, language delay, intellectual disability. They may be subject to sudden infant death um, and have mental health problems. We know prenatal alcohol exposure is associated with disability. We know it's associated with microcephaly, small brain, and we know that when these children who are exposed to alcohol grow up, they're much more likely to have contact with child protection and justice systems and be more likely to be in out-of-home care and fail at school. And of course, the tip of the iceberg really is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So alcohol is neurotoxic. We know it damages our brains and it damages the brains of the, the unborn child. It specifically damages the growth of the brain, the migration of nerves, the development of neurotransmitters that take messages from one nerve to another. And you can see from this um, really gross example that the brain can be significantly deformed and and much smaller if exposed to large amounts of alcohol in in utero. But that brain on the left may still be dysfunctional, even though it looks uh, macroscopically normal. So, as a result of this brain injury, the brain controls the growth of the the face and the other organs, so children may have physical defects, behavioural problems, learning defects, and developmental delay. So, do Australian women still drink in pregnancy? Um, It would be hard to believe that they do. There has been information out there for centuries about the harms, but if we have a look at the recent data, we know that a and on average internationally about 10% of women drink during pregnancy but remember a lot of women don't drink at all um, but in the household survey done most recently in Australia we found that 50% of women drank before they were aware that they were pregnant so during their pregnancy, before pregnancy awareness and 25 continued to drink afterwards and it's not the people out there in um, you know, poor socio-economic land it's people like us, the well-educated, higher socio-economic status who are the more likely to continue to drink during pregnancy. Um, we also know from two recent cohorts in, in New South Wales and Victoria that I've been involved in, um, 60% of women are reporting that they drank during pregnancy and that's mm-hmm. particularly when you ask them did you drink before you were aware you were pregnant and often that drinking before pregnancy awareness was very high levels. Brothers wedding, sisters 21st etc. So inadvertently, they're exposing the baby to, to high levels of alcohol. And similarly, in a study we've, we've not published yet from Hunter New England, we're finding exactly the same thing, 60% of women drinking during pregnancy. So this is a real challenge for us as health professionals to, is to try and stop this um, damage. And, and really, that requires contraception if you're drinking and if you're planning to get pregnant, stopping drinking. Um, we know that in New South Wales, there are many pregnancies where the first um, presentational recognition of alcohol problems, alcohol misuse, is during pregnancy. So, in this very large study, we found that uh, 0.1% had an alcohol-related admission during their pregnancy, and for, for one in five of them, they presented on the day of delivery. Um, we also know that there are pockets of very high risk. So, for example, in, in some remote Aboriginal communities, one in which we've worked, 55% of the women drank, but they all drank at very high levels. So why do women drink? And I think this is an important thing to understand, that we shouldn't be blaming and, and shaming women for drinking in pregnancy. Um, and this is a, a national representative sample, um, a study that Liz Peden, a paediatrician, did. We found that a third of women in childbearing age were actually unaware that they could harm their unborn child. <clears throat> but we also found that about 20% of women were quite tolerant to alcohol use in pregnancy. So if you give them a scenario of a very pregnant woman drinking in the pub, they said, well, that's their own business. It's, it's their right to drink. Um, and what we found was that this tolerant attitude to alcohol was what was associated with a women, woman either drinking in a previous pregnancy or intending to drink in a future pregnancy. So again, that poses a problem to us that it's not a matter of knowledge, and knowledge of harms. It's a matter of changing attitudes to to alcohol use. (coughs) We also know that drinking is strongly associated with previous uh, alcohol use in pregnancy, partner drinking, smoking, and currently drinking at high risk levels. So at least these are people that we can target. Um, And then when we did some focus group work in indigenous women, because they weren't well represented in this previous sample, they told us that they were drinking because of stress. And some of these communities which you may have visited are, are really disadvantaged. There's been historic trauma um, and there's present overcrowding and domestic violence and alcohol and drug use uh, and and isolation, etc. So again, it's very important not to shame and blame these women, particularly when we're trying to engage them in, in therapy. Um, but we have a problem with... Um, doctors and I suspect there's a problem with lawyers as well, is that we're unable to accept that alcohol is a problem in our society. We all drink, and what we found was that health professionals were very anxious about asking and advising about alcohol. Um, they say they don't have the time, they don't know how to ask, they're worried about stigmatising the parent. They're unaware of the, the national guidelines. And if you look at this slide at the bottom, only less than 50% of doctors and other health professionals who routinely see pregnant women actually ask about alcohol Um, and yet when we did this survey of women we found that over 90% wanted to be asked and advised and furthermore over 95% wanted to be told not to drink during pregnancy in other words they want clear instructions so this is the question that I get asked most recently how much can I drink in pregnancy and the pragmatic approach that we're taking is that it's safest not to drink because I told you before that you and I might have a couple of wines and because if we've got different age, different liver function, different genetics different health, different body composition we will have a totally different blood alcohol level we cannot predict the harm and often these harms are, are sort of very um, you know, specifically timed during embryology we do have national guidelines, and those guidelines quite li- clearly state that for women who are pregnant or are planning a pregnancy, not drinking is the safest option, but we do need to ensure that they're uh, disseminated and understood by health professionals. And they're quite in line with um, international guidelines which, which give the same message. Next slide. Um, in this study that we're doing in Newcastle at the moment, because we found that, women, that, that people were reluctant to ask, And partly they didn't know what to do if they got uh, an answer, yes, I'm drinking at a high-risk level. We've embedded the screening and asking about alcohol into the electronic maternity records, and we now give nurses and doctors, when they get a score, the option about where directly to seek help for that that woman. And we're actually randomly um, taking a sample of women that have been seen in these clinics, hundreds of them, thousands of them, And following them up and asking what advice were they given and did this actually change their behavior. So one of the reasons that fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is important to you is that it has lifelong consequences. So this is the sort of child that I might see in in my clinic. Um, Little three-year-old born to an alcohol-dependent mum who drank heavily during pregnancy. He was born preterm, low birth weight, was a bit irritable, then fed poorly and had a single seizure. He was slow to develop He was emotionally labile, socially inappropriate, would go off with anyone in the park. Risky behaviour, would climb and jump off roofs, run across roads. Uh, Difficulty taking any complex instruction, um, repeating his mistakes, labelled as disobedient, um, and in fact was expelled from preschool. Now, we see these children not not infrequently being expelled from preschool. So you can see that very early on they have very difficult behaviours. And really the health issues in this problem, certainly they may have major cardiac or other defects which need to be dealt with, but going through life it's the behavioural problems that cause problems in school, um, antisocial behaviour and contact with the justice system. So this child, um, if you measure his head, He's got a small brain, he's got narrow eyes, he's got uh, the typical features we see in fetal alcohol spectrum disorder that long area between the the nose and the top lip and this thin upper lip. So you do wonder well what does the future hold for for this sort of child? And in fact we know that as they grow up they have uh, certainly medical problems, problems with immunity, respiratory, endocrine problems. Next slide. And we know that the the mean age of death for these um, kids as adults is 34 and that most of those deaths are related to suicide, drug use um, or accidents. But we also know from longitudinal studies that you're at much higher risk of as an adult having mental illness, substance abuse, problems with sexuality and that only at 21 years of age only about 10% live and work independently. Um, Of course there are also economic implications and I put this up really just to remind us that the outcome for these children is also um, dependent on their circumstances. So we know that adverse life experiences, whether it be abuse, neglect or dysfunction in the household such as incarceration or mental illness or substance abuse, significantly increases your risk of harmful behaviours and alcohol and drug misuse as an adult but it also um, significantly increases your risk of poor health outcomes. Um, We also know just recently from Western Australia that one in three children in youth detention in Perth which is the the only detention facility, residential facility um, in WA have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and I'll come back and give you some more details about that uh, in a minute because these are the sorts of kids that we're likely to be seeing uh, in New South Wales as well. So who is at risk? Well obviously if you come across a child whose sibling's got FASD you have to think could they have it? Obviously mums with alcohol uh, dependence and a lot of these children get taken away from those mums, so there are, there's an increased risk in children in foster and adoptive care. Obviously, as doctors, we look for things like birth defects, abnormal face, small heads. Um, but other at-risk groups are children living in remote or communities where there's been high alcohol use for, for decades, such as the one I'll tell you about in a minute, and the juvenile justice system. And I mentioned the economic um, burden before, this is one study from Canada and you can see the criminal justice system there contributes significantly to the costs um, of, of um, people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So I'm just going to briefly tell you how we diagnose fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and why it's important. And increasingly there are demands from the justice system for this diagnosis. So. People are saying, could this be fetal alcohol spectrum? How do we get a diagnosis? What is involved in the diagnosis? Clearly, you're not going to be doing the diagnosis but need to have some understanding of of what the criteria are. So we've recently developed with funding from the federal government the Australian Guide to the Diagnosis of Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder. It's available online freely. And again, although you don't need to know the details, it does give you a lot of the, the background information about what we look for and how we approach this diagnosis. Now I mentioned that um, some of the children that we see have facial and other structural abnormalities which indicates first trimester exposure but many of the children, those below the, the, the water level here have significant neurodevelopmental impairment but without those physical features depending on the timing of the exposure so we now talk about foetal alcohol spectrum disorder with and without these facial features and any of these children can have birth defects, structural brain anomalies or growth failure as well but it's the neurodevelopmental impairment that that is characteristic next slide so the diagnostic criteria prenatal alcohol exposure, neurodevelopmental impairment, and facial features. And of course, like many of these um, disorders that we diagnose in medicine, autistic spectrum disorder, ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, they're based on uh, a group of symptoms. There's no diagnostic test, and that's one of the, the difficulties we have. So we do exclude, for example, genetic and other disorders by doing the appropriate testing. So the first thing is um, prenatal alcohol exposure. Well, ideally we um, ask the mother, but that's not always possible. Many of these children are in foster care. Many of these mothers have, have died. Uh, or we get um, first-hand observation of drinking during pregnancy. Or we get a medical history that suggests that this woman has alcohol dependence, alcohol misuse, has been admitted to hospital, or has had violence um, uh, or, or an offence related to alcohol. So again, if you're seeing a child and you're worried about this um, as a possible diagnosis, you can ask child protection or you can ask for the hospital records, etc. Unfortunately, there's been very poor documentation. We're trying to improve that through our our work at the moment, but it's always worth trying to get additional information. Certainly in our clinic, we're often asking for the maternity records or the um, child protection records. The second thing is we need to establish neurodevelopmental impairment and this needs to be severe and it needs to occur in at least three of these domains. Now in some children it will occur in all domains. So there are things like we want to see evidence of structural abnormalities of the brain on a scan or a small brain um, or a child with seizures or other neurological problems. The child might be clumsy and have poor writing, the child may have a low IQ, have communication problems be failing at school, have a poor memory, have problems with attention and hyperactivity, impulse control or social skills etc. So what we do is we do a multidisciplinary assessment including a paediatrician, psychologist, speech therapist, occupational therapist and we assess each of these domains and what we really want to see is at least three domains affected and when we, we use validated tests and we want to see that that child is scoring at least two standard deviations below the mean, so that this is a significant impairment, not just a bit of, a bit of a stutter or a bit of a lisp or something, but significant language impairment, for example. And these are the facial features that I mentioned, um, and you can see that they hold true whether you're dealing with a Hispanic, Caucasian, or Afro-Caribbean child: this thin upper lip, long, often indistinct philtrum, and um, and the lack of these two groups. So if you just look at your neighbour, um, don't be concerned if you find any of these. You've got to have all three and you've got to have, the, more importantly, the neurodevelopmental impairment. But most of us have these two sort of folds down. Um, some people have a thin lip. Some people have a flat filter. But to have all three in association with neurodevelopmental impairment is characteristic. OK, so now you can see those features hold good... You, across those um, ethnic groups and the same applies to Aboriginal children. Now I won't go into this but and I have touched on it but there are challenges in making this diagnosis. It requires an experienced team, it's expensive, it's time-consuming. Often the uh, evidence of alcohol use during pregnancy is absent and, and hence we can't make the diagnosis. Nevertheless the assessment process is worthwhile. Because even if you don't have a diagnosis of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, to you as lawyers, a child with an IQ of 60 is clearly cognitively impaired and, and will have difficulty negotiating the legal system. So it's worth doing that assessment. And of course, we can, if we know the strengths and the, the needs of the child, we can help them. So it is important, I've said, we can identify the strengths of the child and focus on those, but also the needs and we know that early intervention for any developmental problem promotes better outcomes. It's very important to change the expectations, so if you know what a child's capacity is, your expectations of that child, whether it's at home, at school or in the courts, are different. Um, It allows them to access financial and practical support, including uh, NDIS. Importantly for, for us as paediatricians, it allows <coughs> us to identify the mother who might need treatment to try and prevent the birth of another affected child. Um, and as I've mentioned it, it raises awareness in services, including the courts. Um, parents also tell us that this diagnosis is worth making. Um, it alleviates guilt about poor parenting, for example. It allows them to seek peer support. Um, And certainly overseas, FASD has been recognised as a mitigating factor in the criminal justice system, resulting in more appropriate treatment of children in the court process and in the sentencing process. So what do we know about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in Australia? Does it exist? Now, one of the problems with epidemiology is really to get a good um, estimate of prevalence, you have to see every child in a certain population and then calculate the prevalence. That's expensive time-consuming and uh, we certainly haven't had the funding to do that except in one example which I'll I'll show you. We know from looking at WHO data that there are estimated to be internationally about eight cases of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder per thousand population. So that's over 600,000 children born each year with this disorder and it's now recognised as the leading cause of intellectual development and birth defects and yet this is likely to be an underestimate. So what do we know in Australia? Well, we're currently doing an incidence study. Incidence is slightly different to prevalence. Prevalence is the total number of kids in a population with a disorder. Incidence is the number of new cases seen per year. So we've got a system in Australia called the Australian Paediatric Surveillance Unit, and every month we mail every paediatrician in the country a little report card, which now comes by email, and they tick whether or not they have seen a child with one of the conditions listed and at the moment, they're mainly rare conditions, at the moment, foetal alcohol spectrum disorder is on that. And if they tick that box, they automatically get a link to a questionnaire and they provide us with more details. So over a three-year period, we have identified 250 newly diagnosed cases of foetal alcohol syndrome, spectrum disorder in children under 15. Most are being diagnosed about 8.6, so that's when we start seeing them cause problems at school and fail academically at school male-to-female ratio is about uh, similar. But what we're finding is that because health professionals aren't necessarily trained and aware of this diagnosis as much as they should be, about 80% are being diagnosed in the four assessment clinics that we have, one of which is at our hospital, at Children's Hospital at Westmead. Um, But these are kids with significant problems. So if you look here, a quarter of them have microcephaly, small head. So, uh, again, we're probably seeing pediatricians reporting to us the severe end of the spectrum and the domains of impairment as we'd expect the most common executive function, adaptive behaviour and language all of which will uh, affect a child's performance uh, you know, behaviour and performance in court attention and academic achievement we also know that these children uh, are exposed to high risk high levels of prenatal uh, alcohol uh, and we have various ways of, of measuring that and that most of them are not exposed to significant other drugs. So uh, we know that alcohol in pregnancy is the most dangerous drug for a child. So our colleagues in the States tell us that heroin, cocaine and methamphetamine, etc. doesn't have the same impact on the developing brain. And this comes back to the fact that we know alcohol is both neurotoxic, toxic to the nerves and the brain, and teratogenic, that is, it disrupts the development of the the normal embryo. Um, But interestingly, 75% of these kids have been in touch with child protection, and we know that there's a very strong correlation between children who've been involved in child protection and children who are involved in juvenile justice. Many of them live in out-of-home care. In fact, only 18% live with biological parents, and 15% of them have an affected sibling. So there's missed opportunities to, to... prevent. Now I'm just going to briefly tell you about the Lillillewon project which is a project I was asked to be involved in the Fitzroy Valley in in Western Australia and this is really illustrative I think of what we're likely to be seeing in remote communities, indigenous communities in New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, uh, Northern Territory as well as WA. So this is the only population-based prevalence study that's been done on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in Australia um, and it does give us a ballpark figure. I don't think we need to be doing more of these studies but I think we can, uh, it does suggest that the rates of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder will be high in similar communities uh, around the country and of course the reason for the focus on this is that we know that 80% is it of children in juvenile detention are indigenous children, so they're way over So uh, Fitzroy Crossing, this was a community in crisis, mainly due to alcohol-related harms. In 2007, the women decided enough was enough, and they lobbied the liquor licensing board, and they managed to get restrictions to the sale of takeaway alcohol uh, in the Fitzroy Valley. And even to this day, you can only buy low-strength beer to take away from the pub. No medium or full-strength beer, no wine, no spirits. Um... And having got these restrictions in place, they had a bit of thinking time. Uh, They were well evaluated by Notre Dame University and found to have had a major impact. But they looked around and said, what's wrong with our kids? Why do they look funny? Why aren't they growing well? Why are they behaving badly? And they developed this strategy, the Murrulu strategy, to address the diagnosis and prevention of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and um, to support parents. And Marulu is a word in the Bunaba language of that area which means precious, worth nurturing, which is what they feel about their, their children. Fitzroy Valley, you can see, is a long way from Sydney but we had established a, a relationship with this community over several years and, and hence were invited to help with this study and they wanted us to look at the prevalence of alcohol use in pregnancy and fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and these sort of studies require months of, of consultation. Do we really want to do this study? What if we find the results are, uh, are detrimental to the community, etc.? Anyway, they decided they wanted to go ahead with the Lililwan study. Lililwan is a, a word in Kimberley Creole meaning all the little ones or children. Um, and June Oscar, who was the person who'd invited us up there, who's in fact now our Human Rights Commissioner um, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, was asked to address the parliament and she described fetal alcohol spectrum disorder as a tragedy that somehow transcends other aspects of grief and trauma with innocent young life, the future of our people, our culture, language, knowledge about the magic creation and laws of our country being born into this world with brains and nervous systems that are so impaired that life for that person from birth to death is cruelly diminished And what the community is really worried about, particularly in the oral culture, is that these kids have no memory. They can't remember the songs and the the language, um, etc. And this is just one of many little children. You can see those facial features again, living in that community. He's now about um, eight or nine. He's now in in, uh, child protection, uh, out of home care. His mother, in fact, uh, was killed in a car accident when she was drunk. Um, and uh, he's pretty well non-verbal so he's got a very low IQ Um, and these are the children that have been looked after by people my age, the grannies in these communities and there are lots of them. So next slide please. So what we did was we identified all the children in two age groups in 45 very remote communities around Fitzroy Crossing We photographed the available grog and we asked them what they drank during pregnancy as well as a lot of other things about their pregnancies. Next slide. Um, And what we found was that half of these women didn't drink in pregnancy, but 55% did drink, and those who drank, drank at very risky levels. We can measure those in several ways, but this just shows 10 or more drinks in that right-hand column. So the blue is 10 or more drinks every one or two weeks, the orange two to three times a week and the red is daily or almost daily. So these are women who are living in real severe disadvantage. There's been drinking in the community for decades and this is before the alcohol restrictions um, and they continue to drink during their pregnancies not really understanding that it might harm the unborn child. We then spent the next year doing our multidisciplinary assessment uh, of these children. Next slide. And what we found, perhaps not surprisingly, was that one in five children fulfilled the diagnostic criteria for fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. so 20%. So you can imagine how disruptive that is in the community and in the school. Uh, And they have a full gamut of problems that I've described, physical abnormalities, uh, problems with IQ, memory, etc., But also I've mentioned early life stress and early life stress we know is a contributor to neurodevelopmental problems and 100% of these children had one early life stress or another. Now this gives you an idea of the sort of frequency. Death of a close family member, insecurity of food and and money, too many people in the house, so you might have quite commonly 16 people in a three-bedroom house, grog and drugs in the house, involvement with child protection, so really very high levels of stress. Um, We know that in the children with and without alcohol exposure, despite them all having these sorts of stresses, those with alcohol exposure did much worse and were obviously more likely to have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, but we do need to consider the environment when we're considering um, the the neurodevelopmental outcomes in, in these children. So the community was praised for their courage in addressing what was really a taboo subject. Next one. And they felt that it had been beneficial, even though the truth was was hard to swallow. It did enable diagnosis and treatment, it did enable educational support in the classrooms, we've initiated a family support program, there's high levels of community awareness and of course the project itself created employment and and, uh, the data enabled us to lobby for, for services. Um, But we really do need to be careful not to stigmatise Aboriginals just because we know that there are pockets of very high rates of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. We need to remember this is not uh, just an Aboriginal problem. Now, we also made some educational materials as part of this project and there are two of them. The one on the right has been very valuable in Aboriginal communities around the country because it shows the challenges faced by a little Aboriginal boy at school and at home. Next one. <clears throat> and in fact, we were asked to present that movie and the data at the UN Permanent Forum of Indigenous Issues. And it became evident to our colleagues from Fitzroy Crossing that this is a problem of disadvantaged Indigenous communities around the world. So the Canadians are really onto this, um, the Alaskans, the American Indians. Uh, province in South Africa has perhaps the highest prevalence of Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder partly because women working in the wine industry were paid in alcohol for many decades. (coughs) So having this data has enabled us to support legislation, the alcohol restrictions and other alcohol restrictions. So for example some communities have become completely dry and there's a provision in the law in WA and it may apply in New South Wales whereby someone can ask for a protection order on their house so no alcohol can be brought into their, their house. Do you have that here? Yeah. Anyway, it's very valuable so that if you've got young children, you can just ring the cops and say, provided you are near town, um, you know, I don't want anyone coming into the house with, with grog. Um, It's also enabled some local school teachers to put together a resource for school teachers and we're currently looking at developing a similar sort of resource for justice professionals. Next one. It's also, um, you know, when you realise that children with a low IQ are never going to read or write, it's unrealistic to have high academic expectations of them. So they've developed alternative education pathways. So, for example, these children are being trained to be baristas There are children being trained in fencing and gardening and and other practical skills. Um, And we have put a program in to help children with impulse control in in schools. Next slide. And also a positive parenting program to support those parents in dealing with the behaviours that I've mentioned. Next slide. Um, But one of the biggest pluses of this study was it sort of grabbed the attention of of many people, including Sharman Stone, who was a member of parliament at the time. She initiated an inquiry into fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. We were able to provide a, a written report. We were the first group to give evidence and they published a report in 2012 um, which resulted in $20 million coming to towards fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and that has really enabled us to, to do a lot. Um, uh, so it's enabled us to develop educational resources, diagnostic resources, services, um, etc. And I'll go into some of that later. Now, um, that slide that was just up was the little boy Tristan, who I mentioned was in the movie. He's now grown up and his dad, who's a, a school teacher, is supervising him in running a lawn mowing business. So he's actually doing quite well. He has no concept of money. He'll never learn to read or write, but he's physically very able. Uh, and it's a very good example of, with support, these kids can, can do well. Um, but it's not all a good news story. So one of the little boys in our co- cohort um, a few years ago stole a car, put seven of the kids in our cohort into the car and crashed it, and one child was killed. Um, and, of course, he then ended up uh, in, in jail, and then he was ostracised from the, the community. Next slide. Um, Other children in our cohort have been responsible for trashing the the school. So I guess the point here is that even when you identify a diagnosis, if there aren't the resources available locally, then we're going to see this sort of antisocial behaviour. And really, we need to get in early with diagnosis and and, and interventions and supports to try and prevent what you're seeing uh, in the courts. So what about FASD and and the justice system? Well, we know from overseas studies that if you've got fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, then you've got a 19 times higher chance of ending up in jail. In Canada, it's estimated that 60% of the uh, kids in juvenile justice have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. uh, And in an inpatient, forensic inpatient facility in Canada, 24% had fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. But the problem is that many of them have neither been assessed let's say cognition or or diagnosed uh, before offending and there's lots of evidence that obviously having cognitive impairment or this diagnosis is a barrier to to fair treatment uh, in the justice system. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Banksia Hill study that I mentioned so this is the only juvenile justice facility in inpatient facility, inpatient, I don't know what you call it, residential facility in WA, so they get kids from all over the state. Um, And they have recently got some NHMRC funding to look at FASD prevalence, so similar to what we did in Fitzroy Valley, but this is in in the Juvenile Justice Centre. Next slide. So they looked at young people 10 to 17 who were on remand or sentenced. They did the full multidisciplinary assessment that I've previously described um, and they uh, assess their, their strengths and difficulties. They had a sample of 99 young people and you can see that most of them, 93% were male, 74% were Aboriginal and what they found was that 90% of them had impairment in at least one domain of neurological function. So even if they don't have a diagnosis of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder Many of them have um, one or more domains of impairment Um, and 36% of them were diagnosed with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder but many had unrecognised intellectual impairment and as I said some had never been assessed. Next slide. Um, I I guess the the implications of this, it's the first time we've documented the prevalence of FASD in juvenile justice. It highlights the vulnerability of young people, particularly Aboriginals, in the system and there's really a need for improved recognition and earlier diagnosis to guide um, uh, their rehabilitation. Um, This paper was just published yesterday and it's part of this Banksia study and what they found was that um, they did language assessments in 98 of those children 50% of them had a language disorder and more than half of those with a language disorder were diagnosed with FASD but what they did find was that these kids, only 98% of them spoke 19 different languages um, and that language diversity has not been acknowledged in in the WA justice system. However, less than a third of them spoke standard Australian English as their first language and of course this is the language that we use in, in the justice system. Um, and really what this illustrates is the need for um, experts in communication, so that's speech therapists and uh, interpreters to be available and they're looking at other um, aims of this study, they're looking at um, how to develop the workforce <coughs> to understand neurodevelopmental impairment and foetal alcohol spectrum disorder and uh, they're trying to develop a screening tool that could be used useful in the justice system so that people don't have to go through this whole, not everyone has to go through this prolonged detailed uh, multidisciplinary assessment. Um, I just put this in because um, you'll w- be aware of, well aware of these costs that the estimated cost of detaining a juvenile offender in New South Wales, $652 per day compared to a $16 cost of supervision in the community. So, again, uh, and I'm sure you're all thinking of this, different ways of, of dealing with kids, particularly with those with impairment. So why do children and youth end up coming in contact with the the justice system I've mentioned the deficits that these kids have and so it's not surprising that they might uh, grow up with challenging behaviours next slide so for example um, many of these children have a low IQ Um, approximately 70% will be in the, the normal to low range but some of them will have severe intellectual impairment Often their mental age is less than their chronological age. They don't understand right from wrong. They don't learn from their mistakes. Um, They have language and speech delay. They don't understand what's said to them in the court system. They have poor recall of of instructions and events. They're poor witnesses. And they're often... um, They have often problems with mood and and mental health. Um, They have... This is, I guess, a key to why they often end up in trouble... They have problems with impulsive and aggressive behaviour, frontal lobe problems. Uh, They're often bullied kids because they're a bit different. They often bully and they often are defiant when it comes to being picked up by the police. Many of them self-harm, they're risk-taking, they're easily led. They steal cars, they break into schools, they they are involved in petty theft and they're followers. Um, Many of them are expelled from... Preschool, as I mentioned, let alone school. Um, and many of them end up in child protection systems. But also they have quite often difficulties with social skills. So many of these children with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder have also symptoms of uh, autism spectrum disorder. Poor social skills, poor empathy, uh, difficulty making friends. Um, they, they, Some of them become withdrawn and, and loners. Um, they want approval. They follow, they do whatever they're asked to do. They're often little kids, so they're the ones put through the window to, to break into a house. Um, inappropriate sexual behaviour also relates to this poor frontal lobe um, uh, function and obviously can get them into to problems, particularly in those teenage years. Um, and academic failure comes with poor self-esteem. Many of these kids can't keep time, so if you ask them to come to an appointment, they've got no idea, no concept of time, they've got (coughs) no concept of money, they've got no concept, as I said, of of right or wrong. And many of them themselves end up with drug and alcohol use. Now, this is partly because of their poor self-esteem, but we're also um, exploring whether this is related to prenatal exposure. We also know that alcoholism uh, is, is... There are about 300 to 400 genes associated with alcoholism. Um, And, uh, you know, that that, that means that these kids may well have themselves a genetic predisposition to alcohol and drug misuse. You know, the the pathways to justice, I think we all understand, the historic trauma, the current disadvantage, alcohol misuse, young pregnancies, etc., uh, and we can try and break that cycle through some of these things, improving the living conditions. The apology is, is important to Aboriginal people, particularly. Um, contraception, I've mentioned. Treatment for women with drug and alcohol problems. When it comes to fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, it, it, it's really important that if you've got a child who you think might have the diagnosis, that you request the assessments. Um, not only will that help the child, but it'll help him in the, the legal system. Um, and obviously parent supports, so better services will help that cycle. Um, How should we screen? So if you see a child, well these are the three keys that I've mentioned. Prenatal alcohol exposure, physical features and neurodevelopmental impairment. And the best bet is to go for a neuropsychologist who can do those assessments because they can assess cognition, attention, impulse control, um, executive function, memory, etc. You can cover a lot of those domains of impairment, um, whereas a physio can assess motor impairment, which is sort of less relevant to you in the in the legal assist- legal system. Um, and you know, anyone with these problems that I've already mentioned—academic achievement, bad behaviour, alcohol and drug use, suspension, etc.—should be considered for uh, an assessment. Um, And then I think these are issues for you to think about, that these children often re-offend, often end up incarcerated, can't negotiate the system. They're at risk of harm once they're in detention, Um, and particularly in Aboriginal communities where young children are being put into detention with older people. You know, clearly we need better funding in the health system to allow diagnosis, better legal supports, this is this consideration of diminished responsibility which certainly I'm sure there's some cases in Canada where this is applied Um, we need to think about culturally appropriate prisoner programs seeing many of these kids who end up in uh, juvenile justice or indigenous diversionary pathways, one of the problems with home detention orders in Aboriginal communities is there's no one to supervise them so the housing is poor, it's chaotic often and there's lack of correctional staff to oversee the uh, detention order. Um, and then in, in certainly some communities there are cultural programs and mentoring programs um, to try and divert children. Um, there was in WA a clinic established for children and youth justice but that's now being defunded, it was short-term funding and we have nothing in New South Wales so if you want an assessment done you really need to refer it to someone like our clinic at at Westmead or to a child development service there are big waiting lists it's a it's a couple of day process and um, you know we're all under underfunded so you will help us by advocating for better access to diagnostic services and of course we need to remember that when we're dealing with these kids we need to consider the trauma that many of them have, have suffered Um, I just put this up, some of you may be aware, recently Anne Cregan from Gilbert and Tobin developed a documentation inspired by the work that she did in the Fitzroy Valley really to um, ask for review of the requirements for funding for cognitive impairment so that at the moment you can only get funding for cognitive impairment if you've got an IQ less than 70 and in fact many of these kids even, let's say you've got an IQ of 75, are significantly functionally impaired um, so she's uh, advocating for consideration in the um, legal system so that people don't miss out on on uh, these supports. Um, so this comes to sort of some of the information we have from Australia. We know Indigenous uh, incarceration rates are high. In Northern Territory, 96% of those in juvenile justice are Indigenous. In WA, it's about 80%, and many of them are in jail because of alcohol-related incidents. We know there was a Northern Territory inquiry on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. It was deemed to be a major problem, and the recommendations included better diagnostic services and, of course, restrictions on access to alcohol, which requires legislation. Um, Now, this is one of the cases that's been in the news. Anne Fulton... uh, Sorry, um, Rosie Anne Fulton, she was jailed in Northern Territory for 21 months with no trial and no conviction because she was deemed incapable of giving evidence. And the reason she was incapable was she had severe intellectual impairment and she was subsequently diagnosed as fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and released into some sort of community care. So we really don't know how many people are, are, are there in our prison system, particularly in, in remote uh, places, I think she was in Alice Springs or somewhere, um, because they haven't been assessed and they're not. it's not realised that they've got um, cognitive problems. Um, we know that the Royal Commission has got a lot of information in it about um, the, the Royal Commission into children in juvenile detention in Northern Territory, a lot of information in it about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and the co- contribution that that has made to... Those children being incarcerated. Is that the recent one? Yeah, that's the Mick Gooder and um, mm-hmm. and in fact he's just written an article I read the other day uh, with his with the judge Margaret someone is it? Um, it, it really just saying well what what now you know there's been no action following this um, this royal commission um, and again this relates to the fact that it's thought that a lot of people in jail have cognitive impairment and that many of those may have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and this is really a plea for early assessment. Now this is a, another case that's recently occurred in, in Western Australia in the Kimberley and this was a boy, teenage boy, who wandered off and basically was attacked and Killed by a crocodile, the coroner found that he, um, this boy who had been diagnosed with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder as an infant and had developmental delay and behavioural um, problems, mm-hmm. was unable to, you know, made a poor decision to enter a swamp, even though he knew that, knew that there were, were crocodiles there. And this has led to this whole issue of many of these children are in foster care, but again, many of them have been undiagnosed, and many of the carers don't know how to care with, uh, for, for children so she recommended screening for FASD and child protection and foster care services um, this is a case from San Diego um, and fetal alcohol syndrome now fetal alcohol syndrome is the name we used to call fetal alcohol spectrum disorder with the facial features and growth problems so in other words it's that tip of the iceberg that I showed kids with facial features as well as the neurodevelopmental impairment. So this was a 13-year-old boy who stabbed his uh, 12-year-old friend and he was found to be mentally incompetent to stand trial because of his mental and developmental problems associated with FASD. Um, So, uh, you know, there are sort of variations on the theme, aren't they? So he was found unable to stand trial. then this was a case in New Zealand where this chap was jailed for 20 years for rape and murder and subsequently the court found his confession was unreliable and that this amounted to a miscarriage of justice because he was found to, to have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and when they went back you know, I don't know whether there was coercion but it was thought to be an unreliable confession um and then there's this wrongful conviction case of... Now, this is the one I was talking about in Broome. This was a young white boy was murdered in Broome and this young black boy, Indigenous boy, was picked up and confessed to doing the murder um, under instructions from, from the lawyers. And, in fact, it was the mother who said, no, no, that, that boy didn't do it and, and, and forced a, an inquiry, a review of the case. And in fact, he was found to be wrongfully committed. He got a, a payout. He was released at five years, um, after five years in jail, despite a 7.5 years... Was that this year? No, this was in um, 2010. He was accused of killing the man. Um, Gene Gibson... Is that his name? That's the name of the person who spent five years in jail. So he pleaded guilty to killing this man on instruction from his lawyer, sentenced to 7.5 years, conviction overturned because he was found to have a diagnosis of FASD and the judge deemed that he neither had the cognitive ability nor the English language skills to understand the the legal process and and that contributed to his um, pleading guilty. Um, I I mean, this is a a case that was in the New York Times of a 35-year-old waitress who was charged with attempted murder. Um, She she presented at hospital at nine months pregnancy, um, had to have an emergency caesarean section for fetal distress She said she didn't want to give birth. She said, I'm just going to go home and keep drinking and drink myself to death and I'm going to kill this thing because I don't want it anyway. She was found to have a very high blood level and they actually measured the blood level in the baby and the blood level in the baby was two times the the legal limit for intoxication and more than two times the DUI limit in in California. But this was the first time a prosecutor had used attempted murder for for, um, a, a fetus um, and that the child actually survived but apparently since ni- the 1980s 200 women in the US have been prosecuted for alcohol abuse while pregnant now I mean it, it's a sort of a bit of a no-win situation this, yes, and we're certainly not advocating that women be prosecuted the women need treatment not, not prosecution but ideally are identified much earlier before they get pregnant and cause harm to others
0: Was the name of the mother
1: Zimmerman? Zimmerman. Yeah, so her name was Zimmerman. I can give you a copy of these. Um, um, And then of course there have been cases where people have sued the mother, so foster parents, or in fact there was one case of a child who tried to sue their mother for the damage that they'd caused. Um, And again, fortunately, certainly in the UK there was a case recently, the case was dismissed. This is this whole issue of whether an unborn person is a legal person. Um, But it also relates to the fact that many of these women are not drinking because they intend to harm their their child uh, because they've got a disease, which is alcohol abuse. Um, So there are, I think, a number of cases like that. This one was in Britain, but there were others in the States. So... um, in WA there's been a recent survey of justice professionals um, to establish awareness and we haven't done anything like this in New South Wales but I suspect it holds that more than 90% are aware of this issue of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Uh, oh, well, sorry, many were aware of fetal alcohol syndrome that is this child with a funny face and birth defects and behavioural development problems. Fewer were aware that there can be a spectrum and I think that's an important point for you to remember that these children may look normal and adults. Um, Most staff, legal um, staff realised that FASD was relevant to their work Um, and many of them said that they felt they had dealt with a person with FASD. Um, Many said that they felt that assessment and diagnosis of FASD would improve the possibilities of appropriate consequences um, for unacceptable behaviour, but many indicated the need for more information and I guess that's the sort of thing that we're, we're trying to do here is is raise awareness. Um, and there was strong support across all sectors for development of alternative or diversionary sentencing options for FASD. So there may be quite a bit in the, in the WA um, literature about how they've dealt with cases. We have, um, with government funding, developed what we've called the FASD Hub. It's a website which has a lot of information, uh, freely available. We'd love your feedback. It's intended primarily for health professionals, but there are sections for other professionals, teachers and, and lawyers, um, and a section for parents, and it's got all the latest Australian research there. We haven't actually got a section on media, and I think that we should add that because there are a lot of cap- that might be useful for for lawyers. Um, there is a service directory, so if you need a child assessed, you can um, look up that service directory and see where you might be able to get the child assessed uh, in New South Wales or elsewhere. And there is a section for other professionals, and in that section there are some resources for justice professionals. Um, and f- for example there are a number of videos, I couldn't get my technical expert to help me load any of these, but um, basically there's, there's some little videos that have been made in WA by lawyers um, talking about FASD in the justice system, representing clients, protection and care, FASD in the judiciary, awareness of FASD and overview of the issues. So that's worth looking up. That's available on the hub. Um, there is a, an organisation called the National Organisation for FASD, which primarily supports parents and caregivers and, and individuals with FASD. And that's something that you can... Again, there's a lot of information on that um, website, particularly for families. And if you have families who need help, they can ring the, the helpline and speak to someone. So we still have a number of challenges, and and this is also somewhere where the legal profession can help us. For example, we know that excessive use of alcohol is related to uh, advertising and promotion, and we know that advertisers are targeting young women. So this particular ad uh, for a new low cal vodka cruiser, which would interest young women, uh, was promoted in Sydney with the offer of free condoms and a chance to win a pole dancing kit. Now, people say that these promotions of alcohol, and you'll see them in Father's Day promotion, buy 20 beers for X. And the industry will argue that people just put those away and they'll use them on an as-needs basis, as you would toilet paper. But we know that actually people who buy alcohol in these promotions uh, drink them. So advertising and promotion is a big issue for us. The other issue, and I was recently in New Zealand last week um, listening to Peter Adams and Doug Silman talk, the alcohol industry has a huge um, impact um, on harms. And for example there are these um, social aspects and public relations organisations such as DrinkWise, which are funded by alcohol industry profits but are sort of independent of um, industry. And they seem to be able to get into the air of government. So recently we had a bit of a Um, uh, an interesting situation where DrinkWise had developed these posters that said it's safe not to drink while pregnant, which is consistent with our guidelines. But the subtext, which you can't read here, said it's not known if alcohol is safe to drink while you're pregnant. So there was a big outcry, um, including by the AMA and all of these posters which had been distributed all over Australia to doctor surgeries were pulped. However, they then put out some videos um, talking about YouTubes, talking about the harms of alcohol in pregnancy. And the minister endorsed these. And here you can see the minister um, with the Drinkwise poster behind him. So, in other words, these very surreptitiously, these organisations that purport to do good by providing education, etc., actually still have their bottom, uh, industry funding and, and their bottom line is, is profits. Um, Recently, we had um, the Australian and New Zealand um, decision to mandate warning labels on alcohol for pregnant women. All our alcohol that goes to Canada, for example, has a warning label on it. Um, And, uh, you know, this is a good thing. It does raise awareness. Um, But DrinkWise, again, the industry-funded organisation is currently lobbying so that they can put their labels on these bottles and we know from the past that these labels are small, non-explanatory and often refer you to their website Um, so we've really got to ensure that if we're going to mandate these labels that the public health professionals have a role in determining what sort of label they are, where they're placed and what they say rather than the industry. So just in summary before we have some discussion, children and youth are vulnerable to justice contact. Mm -hmm. incarceration because of their brain injury and associated deficits. Justice professionals should know about FASD. Um, It's worth reading the National um, and Northern Territory inquiries into FASD and the Royal Commission into Juvenile Incarceration because FASD features prominently in that. Um, You know we believe that just as doctors need education on this area uh, so do justice professionals. Um, In Remote communities, we're working with the police to try and ensure that they understand and and deal with these children in the appropriate way at the first contact because in remote communities many kids end up uh, in a jail with adults for very very minor offences. We obviously believe as health professionals we need much better access to health services and that you need access to those services to assess your clients. We also agree with alternative pathways to uh, incarceration, and uh, this is what I've just been talking about. We need to promote and and support legislation to reduce access to cheap uh, 24-hour-a-day alcohol, which is is causing harms. Um, So we think that FASD is everyone's business. It's not a health problem. In fact, once these kids are their health problems are managed usually in early childhood it becomes a behavioral and educational uh, problem and a problem for the justice system so I'd certainly urge you to uh, encourage your colleagues to be aware of the harm spread the prevention message and uh, access the hub and, and other sources of information. And Is, yes.
0: a, is a neuropsychologist the right expert? To it it is so we we
1: have in our clinic a clinical psychologist who hasn't got that additional training now she can do all these assessments but we often uh, meet with our neuropsychologist and we're about to employ a neuropsychologist who has a more sophisticated understanding of the interpretation I guess of these tools okay. so you know the psychologist is definitely the person they can do, they can use for example the WISC to look at IQ they can formally evaluate memory and um, Attention and academic achievement, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a very rigid process using validated tools. They can get a score. They can demonstrate that that score is below what you would expect. You know, two standard deviations below what you would expect for, for the average. Um, so they're definitely, they're the they're the right person. Any other
0: questions? Just one, um, just with the diagnosis. Can that only be done by a paediatrician or can it be done by a psychologist and the neuropsychologist? Well, the
1: diagnosis requires the history of alcohol exposure, Mm -hmm. so I guess anyone can get that provided they have access to the appropriate records and Mm -hmm. then um, the neurodevelopmental assessment. And a psychologist can assess maybe six or seven of those, or four or five maybe, I can't remember, of those domains. Um, But if the, the child doesn't isn't found to have impairment in those domains, you may need to extend that assessment to a speech therapist, physiotherapist, occupational therapist. But also the the medical doctor has a role in looking at weight, head circumference, facial features and birth defects. So normally what we would say is, say you're a GP out in um, Bathurst and you're worried about this, you would refer to a paediatrician and that paediatrician would do the physical examination, try and take the history, get as much information as they could about the child's performance at school, at home, etc., and then would request a specific assessment by a child psychologist and all those other allied health professionals, and then they would bring it all together and say this does or doesn't seem to fit the criteria. Alternately, Children can be assessed in a child development unit where they already have the team there, or in a specific clinic like ours where they do only ta- we only take referrals of children who are thought to have been exposed to alcohol. Not not all children with neurodevelopmental problems. So it can be done in many different ways. So a psychologist could be doing an assessment and think, you know, this child's really impaired and the mum's known to have an alcohol problem. I'll do these assessments, but I'll then send them to the pediatrician or the general practitioner for a further assessment so it doesn't matter how it's done um, uh, some some processes are more efficient than others and what we what we don't have I think in New South Wales is a is a good pathway referral pathway for lawyers so you know if you have a child it's, it's easier, I guess. You could what
0: about a 20-year-old? The GP about Bathurst has a 20-year-old... Patient. Yeah, well, that,
1: that's more difficult. They would get the, a neuropsychologist to do the... That's what I would advise, get a neuropsychologist to do those assessments and explore the... They themselves should look at the person physically and explore the history mm-hmm. to make sure there wasn't a history of mm-hmm. developmental problems or mental illness or brain injury or mm-hmm. infection or premature... Whatever, all those things... Uh, and then they would look at the neuropsychologist's report and their own information and see whether they needed further assessments. Um, So neuropsychologist is a good first step. Well, thank you all for coming. I hope it was useful. Oh, it was. Thank you very much.